Howdy. Natalia Vodovich has written an excellent book called Wargaming Experiences about approaches to professional wargame design informed by her experience with the NATO Civil Military Cooperation Center of Excellence. Her book offers a lot of guidance relevant to both historical games and wargames, so I invited her to discuss it along with differences between professional and commercial design. So I kind of wanted to know uh, how you um, how you enjoyed, or whether or not you enjoyed, your uh, first SD HisCon a few weeks back. It was uh, surreal because I actually interact with many people online and I know their faces, but then you pop in and it looks like internet became alive. Yes. <laughs> All of the friends that you know from afar now became very real. So it was super cool for me to meet them in person, including you, including many others. And, you know, there is something about entering a room with 20 war games actively being played. It's like just a feeling of uh, active, active um, war gaming that was uh, really nice. And I think what is quite unique about uh, HistCon is um, it actually had a really high number of designers present. So the chance of either playing the prototype or a new design um, or just getting feedback on something I'm working on is really high. So for a lot of reasons, that was for me a special uh, convention. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's pretty wild, the ratio of designers to attendees. And that was one of the first events I think I ever attended uh, before I even started designing games. So I thought con all, all the cons were like that, <laughs> <laughs> which is just bananas. It's just totally weird. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was a really great experience to be able to like go to those events and like try those things. Were there uh, any games in particular that you got to try that you um, were pleasantly surprised by or like kind of blown away by? I was completely not aware about Land and Freedom, Alex Knight's mm -hmm. uh, design uh, about... Uh, it, it is semi-cooperative and it features the communists, the moderates and the anarchists and they, they still have to work together to uh, repel fascists. <laughs> so that was pretty interesting as a model to test out. And... Um, Unfortunately, we always lose because you see that there is a kind of threshold of uh, you want to repel the fascists, but you also don't want to give advantage to other players that are succeeding too high. Uh, so that was a pretty interesting crossover between a couple of uh, genres of games for me. And I also played a prototype from um, Matthias Kramer. Yeah. Uh, I played Stalin's Death. Okay, that was the one I didn't get to try. I tried Promised Land, like the other one. I didn't get to try that. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should definitely exchange thoughts. I thought that um, Stalin's death is a really quick, but uh, very, very enriched in history, uh, card-driven game. Um, so that, that would be uh, a really cool way to speak about... Uh, uh, big imperiums and uh, how the leadership there is functioning because you see different um, markers moving, such as military support, for example. Yeah, if you get that on your side, obviously you could make a putsch, I guess, in, in Russian terms. So, yeah, yeah it, it was pretty cool to play out. I don't know about Promised Land. What, what was your uh, impression? Um, it felt like a game very much still in development. Like, I, I got that sense. I, I will say... You know, it's intended for, I think, two players. We played with two teams governing mm -hmm. each play. And I was on a team with my friend Jean Claire and then with Dan Thoreau. And we are all such terrible influences on each other. So, like, we were just so, we were like snickering and doing the most devious things. And I don't know if you have this experience testing other people's games, but when something is offered as an early victory condition, we play so hard for it. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I definitely try to see if I can break 
break mm-hmm. the game sometimes just by leaning too hard into it. And, um, and I think we did that there. <laughs> I think we did it. We, uh, we, we went out with a more diplomatic approach, turning basically the entire world, um, against Israel, like with, with like just picking the leadership that was going to go this route. Everything was like tailor made to one strategy, which you could probably see from a thousand miles away. Like it was just like very apparent that we were doing this and, um, a car and, um, I'm trying to remember who's on the other team opposite us, but they went hard toward their immediate victory condition. So it became a foot race and we were, we were just faster. We, we, we just mm-hmm. won in that way. Um, but you can see a designer's disappointment when they've got a stack of event cards that haven't been gone through <laughs> a lot of things in the game that we hadn't touched in the model because we were engaged in our sprint for that victory objective. Um, but yeah. And that's interesting. Cause I, it's also like something I learn a lot about design and development for my own projects is how, how players engage with the, with the tantalizing early victory condition. It's like, sometimes you're just dropping fresh meat in front of sharks and you're just waiting to see what happens and they cannot wait to destroy my little game. So I'm like very cautious about what I would enter in as a early victory condition or when a model, it's not appropriate maybe for it to have an early victory condition, but. I also have to say that designers are the worst players in in my experience, including me, because uh, whenever I would playtest my game, I I get a couple of uh, groups of uh, normal players. And uh, they would generally, as you say, they would say, how do they engage? How did they feel in it? Uh, Sometimes they already come up with, oh, that was not balanced, or I thought that was too easy. But the designers were like, so what if I do 10 times the same move wouldn't that break the mechanism <laughs> well let's try yeah yes so, all right they are very uh, already focused on looking at um, the bigger system uh, so actually i i do like to have like two free designers who just look at it and try to break it because then you know the players will be good with it <laughs> this yeah didn't break it <laughs> I'm I'm usually very intentional about having like sometimes you have a table full of all designers testing it, mm. and then sometimes it's just all players who are going to engage with it in the same way that you would imagine uh, the people who will buy your game are going to engage with it or whatever the intended audience is. And it's so the, sometimes sitting your game down in front of a table from it full of designers is really intimidating, <laughs> and sometimes it it's just um, more an exercise in having to justify all of your decisions within mm-hmm. everything that you incorporated in the model, which is fine. It's good to answer for that. But you, you know, it's interesting with the players where they're just like their, their input sometimes will be about how they felt playing the game. <laughs> and it's very, it's interesting how you don't always get a, a table experience where everyone's talking both about how things were modeled, but also how they felt playing the model that's why it's really interesting to see where a lot of you know especially with war games where they're going right with incorporating a little bit of the feeling of the play experience and some of that friction that a designer will put into a design uh alongside the element of justifying what what you're modeling what maybe is being abstracted sometimes too much and and just kind of like having to justify that with subject matter experts, people who just know they have designed games that are in a similar space. Um, and I, I occasionally think that maybe that's part of the reason I like designing for topics that don't have many games, because then I don't have to, it's not that I don't have to justify the things I'm putting in, but I don't have to be as influenced by other games in that space. I get to just be, creative and bumble around and run into things and it it feels like a little bit more gratifying there yeah and i think that uh that gives me flashbacks to my uh, nato designing times because there it was even a step backwards i think now it's changing but at that time you had to justify why would you be even doing war gaming because like why, why do we need to spend time on this? And and then you had to justify that actually your model is correct and the data is realistic. 
And then you would get a question, why is it realistic? Because it's undiplomatic, right? So th there was a lot yeah. of caveats even before you got to play. But later I um, understood that actually you will never make everyone happy so and and you will always get kind of uh I, I remember with the game on belarus i i often mention it because it was so bizarre to me i was showing the advanced prototype at uh, one of the conventions and it is a game about an uprising in belarus okay it models the waves of people going into different locations and somebody asked me will there be nuclear energy <laughs> And I was looking like, hmm, oh, this game is about, right? So I can try to come back to, to the main point. Um, and they're like, so what's the point? And uh, I think the, the um, if I now come back to it, I think that there was some reasoning such as that they got the task to develop a game about it or something, but they just aggressively wanted to see nuclear energy uh, regarding social movements. So uh, that, that was uh, my... The, the kind of light bulb and I just looked uh, at, at that person straight in the eye and said it's not an educational game okay it's, it's just supposed to be fun get over it because uh, you will not kind of be able to satisfy all the audiences yeah well, whatever you do so at one point I think if there is a clear vision that's what I would like to convey with the game um yeah, some people will go with it. Some people should look for other games, especially since we have so many titles coming out. Th mm -hmm. There should be a way where uh, everybody finds what they are looking for. And I also agree with you. I actually love doing games on topics that are not out there yet, not Battle of the Bulge, number 124, <laughs> which I understand is, is very exciting and people love to compare them. I actually recently read an article from David Burden. So he compared how different battles of Hue modeled uh, combat. And he was looking for which one was the best for decision makers. Fascinating. Love yeah. that. So I do like to have multiple, but um, what about battles that were never covered? Um, that's where I'm a bit uh, looking for. And it also makes me more interested. Um, but still, we can have both. Absolutely. I, I would love to see us just retire from doing Battle Bulge for like two <laughs> years. Like just a two-year break. Give us a break. <laughs> yeah. I, I made, it was a little snarky, but I put up like this graphic uh, on my Twitter feed and it was um something like along the like a... <laughs> like a matrix um, breakdown of like, should I design a game about Battle of the Bulge? And then like mm -hmm. the first question is, are you John Butterfield? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> if yes, proceed. If no, consider waiting. Like just take a little break, maybe. Um, I, 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 did, I would love to see like some, some more modern, I mean, my bias is always towards more modern topics in general anyway, but I think if it's an uncovered period of history, then... I'm, I'm like always interested in like kind of poking around and checking out the game for it. And um, I do know that a lot of my friends who are very into war games um, are aghast when I mention that I've played like only three East Front games in the entire time I've been alive. Uh, they're like, well, how, how dare you? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> sometimes a response. Um, but yeah, it's interesting when you're talking about the... Um, it's, a, it's for I Am Not Afraid, right? Which you were getting this reaction about nuclear energy. Okay. So it's interesting because even your your book is sort of structured in the beginning around some of the people like why why war game, the skepticism toward what would be learned from it, right? And what would the outcome be from that? And I find it interesting in the commercial hobby, there's a little bit of overlap with some of these same points in terms of... Um, I thought the one that resonated with me um, in terms of what I hear people comment the most is um, against virtual warfare in general regarding the absence of civilians, right? Is this, you kind of touch on it as a, the, what'd you call it? The, I think it was like the, it's like a paradox that some had voiced about professional games too, um, where modern designs are now starting to move toward incorporating um, a civilian presence. And uh, in your book, you talk about the red versus blue phenomenon, uh, 
and how it's opened now to include green and white as well. Uh, would you mind kind of elaborating on the benefits of incorporating local populations in design? Definitely. And and this chapter on why do we do wargaming and uh, who should do it? That was like a preemptive strike, just like if you have people yes. coming in saying... Ah, what's the point? Then, then you see, okay, there is a number of points. We are aware of the um, complaints or the criticism, and some of it is valid, right? If if we see kind of Excel sheets that have been around for 20 years without revision, yeah, we, we have to look at it critically. So I like to sum up the arguments for and against and, and then consciously go into it um, saying what kind of war game we will be playing. And part of that is... Um, making it realistic. And I do also come to the modern scenarios because we can see what changed, what stayed the same. And I, I would say on the commercial side, it makes for me sense, it's relatable that um, civilians take out the fun of the game, right? It, it mm -hmm. is, we want to shoot things and see who is the better commander, yeah? Mm -hmm. So like, if, if you give me civilians to evacuate, ah, that, that's a really tough mission that I have to do. And why? No fun. Um, but I don't think we have that luxury of choice when we come to uh, professional war games and we speak about uh, urban combat. So if we go into modern scenarios, actually, the, the main uh, objective was evacuation of the civilians. And after that, um, keeping some of the strongholds or getting um, advantageous positions. So th the question would be, how can we design war games that would reflect it, but wouldn't be a bore uh, in, in the short uh, run? And I do think there are many um, games that neglect it just because um, in the past we had a, this grand vision of deploying. Yeah? And when you deploy, Apparently, it doesn't matter what happens with the population. It's only about the, th that was kind of very attritious warfare of mm -hmm. uh, let, let's get more of the other side killed than other, uh, than they do to our side. But of course, we, we have been revising this model because uh, th that just uh, led to long um, insurgencies. So if we learn that lesson, potentially we would be able to propose something new. And then I do think that games started to speak about factions, about popular support. I don't recall which game it was, but somebody was describing to me a mechanism where you can only use a supply route if the population support is on your side. So I thought, yeah, that is a perfect way to reflect. You have to take into account what is happening on the territory outside of uh, full destruction, unless that was the objective, but that rarely, um, uh, I, I yeah. would say, comes through. I, I mean, you had a you had a couple of great examples in your book, the uh, the Baltic Challenge game. Um, I think even the the Battle for Mosul um, one was also like that one's interesting to me, especially because we've we've I've seen a couple games. The commercial games that have come out about Mosul handled very differently. And mm. I think when they treat it like a purely logistic exercise um, with little regard for population that is there, um, I don't really know what I'm playing. <laughs> way. Like, I don't know what we're modeling. We're modeling something that feels very divorced from a lot of the most interesting constraints, I think, of um, Iraqi forces kind of moving into the old city and, and trying to take it. Whereas when I was playing um, a recent release from Nuts uh, Publishing. Uh, You're coming, Nineveh. Yes. I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was yeah. fantastic. And I felt like garbage the whole time I was playing, which is my mark of a great <laughs> game, by the way. It's, it's very important to just feel a little pukey while playing <laughs> like through something. Um, but the incidence of tracking collateral damage is just the instead of um the model that i was so inspired to design from was like these twilight struggle type games where you're playing a card that has an event on it but you're essentially shaping 
shaping the course of when events are played and when you take actions. And in in Nineveh, the deck is like this weird popcorn popper of terrible things. And each kernel just bursts in the middle of the action. It interrupts the action constantly. And that feels so much more organic to what I would assume the circumstances are on the ground. Every time we flipped over a card, the audible disgust from me and my opponent <laughs> before even seeing it, just the act of flipping the card over, which is like, Ugh, like every <laughs> single time was perfect. I thought that was great. Um, but yeah, it was interesting to see how civilian um, casualties were kind of incorporated into that. The actual physical destruction you're doing to infrastructure within the old city, and then also the limitations on being able to bring armor in. It was just all very cool in how that was incorporated. But I also thought it was a part of it was that it was a, a system that was really easy to teach. It was something that was very quick, uh, fast playing experience, and not a 12 hour kind of design that you'd have to employ yourself in. And, you know, you'd hope that with more time, you're getting into a deeper level of detail. Um, but it was interesting how it was able to create this synergy of all incorporating those kinds of green and white <laughs> type of influences in various ways, whether it was in the deck of cards, whether it was in like some of the pieces that were on the board um, and a lot of fog of war. Um, but I think that you'd kind of mention that for some of the designs that even have in professional settings, there's a little bit of resistance in terms of like how maybe civilian support is like sort of modeled, like occasionally, like that the feedback is sometimes a little bit grumpy about that. Was that kind of your experience <laughs> with that Baltic challenge game? Well, it, it was interesting because at that time there was a couple of, um, I, I would think Volko uh, says they are mental models. And a couple of mental models for me were not clicking with reality. The first one being a lot of um, officers still held the belief that um, eastern flank of NATO uh, is a place um, that, uh, that they would um, fight the battles, but they don't have to take care of uh, the countries that are in that place. So that they uh, just planned like, oh, we are going to put the group here. It's like, okay, what about the government and their plans? Oh, th right. Because they didn't yet catch up with the fact that um, obviously there are uh, four independent nations in the Baltic area. So that was uh, a kind of mental model that you had to go from um, sort of forward deployment into actually thinking about it as your own border. Mm -hmm. uh, and even further having, as I said, allied nation that uh, uh, is guarding it and you are rather in supporting role. So that was the first uh, mental model that um, we had to discuss. And the second one was um, all of the borders uh, have obviously a mix of nationalities. And it can be that uh, in, in some of the cities, that was the example of, of um, the war game that I designed for uh, the Baltic challenge, um, actually, they called it minority, but majority of the population was Russian, right? Over um, 60%, I believe. So the question then becomes, uh, what happens if there would be um, such a struggle? And that was way before Second Ukrainian War. So mm. uh, we, we were speaking then about influencing under the threshold and all these sorts of concepts. So the question would be, um, what happens and what do we do in times of peace to um, look after this uh, population? And uh, th there was a very simple misunderstanding that um, caught up to me because first I designed the war game and then I actually went to that city to check out all of my assumptions about it. Uh, and the example I often give is whenever uh, commanders would plan uh, and then we already added commanders that were not only NATO, but also Russian, but also just sort of outside uh, leaders um, that, that could choose their allegiance based on uh, what was happening um, and support some of the actions. So um, all of these groups would generally target um, religious um, buildings, either churches or, or other um, 
places of, of worship. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go and see, just as an observer, how popular they are. You know, what, what is a kind of frequency? I don't know, 10%, 20%. And then I remember I arrived uh, on Sunday there and uh, there were like three people and me as a tourist. <laughs> I was always thinking, hmm, well, th that action is possible, but uh, the chances that it changes anything is very low. And the same for, um, let's say, speaking with people that live there, because um, you obviously ask yourself the question, what would they do? And a couple of things interest me today about it, but at that time, um, I looked, for example, at the uh, monuments they have. So who are they? Um, cheering for and you know th there was a historical um, statue and I really wanted to see the inscription um, and the inscription was to those that liberated us right it was not about the Red Army it was not about the Allies it was not about the local partisans it was everybody who fights for us will be our um, friend uh, and they also say that they have two hearts they don't have to choose, yeah? They don't have to side with one of the nations. They can have both. So yeah. th that always stayed with me that we make so many assumptions based on our kind of national models um, th that are um, the most common in um, the West. Uh, and all of it is wrong. So th that was yeah. uh, interesting <laughs> to pick up. Um, and, and then based on that, uh, also looking at... Um, Mosul, not only in terms of tactics that, that are very good to study uh, for uh, the future, but uh, one of the big challenges was um, the identification of either combatant or civilian. Mm. We had an excellent briefing about the issues of protection of civilians uh, at the time, so that translated into a couple of um, vignettes that, that we could speak about. But uh, they are, of course, um, very brutal lessons. But th the problem is, if we don't speak about this, uh, we propagate these false assumptions that I mentioned before. Th they just become stronger and stronger. And, and then we see uh, in practice that um, it is very dangerous. Um, so another war game that we used at the time I wouldn't say that I even tried to be provocative, but we took the existing um, policy and we took a scenario from a year ago and we said, let's see how the groups would do against this situation. It involved also critical infrastructure and the outcomes were deadly, just like 95%, all of them would fall. And it was not their fault. They, they've been um, good, competent groups but the policy uh, prescribed negotiations where you had very aggressive actors. Mm. So th that made no sense. And we could come back on that report. No, you, you have to adjust to the context that you are using this policy in. Um, we weren't as successful as to get them to change the policy yet. Yeah, it doesn't change much, but uh, <laughs> we at least had the... Um, possibility to speak about the results. I imagine too, like when you participate in something like that, um, if you have reservations about an ongoing policy or doctrine, it stays with you for, mm -hmm. a long, <laughs> for a long time. So even if maybe you're not in the position where you enforce something the way you want, it still informs how you engage with it and like kind of how you think about it. And like, um, I, I think that sometimes there's an assumption when um, designers are modeling something, we put things in the in the sandbox to kind of raise difficult questions and create a little bit more um, of a. Uh, you sometimes you kind of bring to bring to bear like these contradictions in in what we're told or what we're taught, and then you have to like make a practical decision when you don't have any means of connecting with the outside with the, with a superior, you know, and like to try to get this kind of perspective that you don't necessarily have when you are on the ground and like you're immediately confronted with this really more thorny issue than you were taught you were going to be embroiled in. And I think that that's 
to me, like the most insightful parts of games aren't where it's giving you clarity. It's where it's kind of removing a, a false sense of clarity you thought you had on something because it gives you time to deliberate and kind of think about it. Um, I imagine that makes for a little bit of a, uh, some conflict sometimes when you're talking about, say, methodology for like professional wargaming, right? Like a guiding protocol for design. I was sort of wondering, like, um, you know, you give a concise overview of methodology in your book. And I was kind of wondering about like your guiding protocol, how it's informed your own design. Is that like something that you had from the first time you designed professionally or something you cobbled together with experience? I would say the second option. So when I joined Wargaming, it was um, much less active than it is now. So let's say five, ten years ago, we had literally free books on that topic. And uh, th there was just no way to um, get an instruction or a handbook. I think since then we, we've gotten a fair amount of uh, material that now is available. But much of the motivation for the book was like, okay, people that are completely lost, like me, mm -hmm. th they would have something to start with um, in a kind of informal way. So I did indeed first um, start with a precedent. So I did a war game trying to use a model, uh, try out different scenarios and um, presented also in a way that people could easily um, engage with that and understand the purpose. And I repeated that a couple of times. And then I noticed, as you say, that there are things that uh, should always be included because that will help you to uh, kind of not go in circles on, or back and forth, um, which generally is a good development process. But um, if you can do it in a structured way, I feel like it takes away a lot of this uncertainty that I had when I started. So I remember I was uh, for about uh, six to nine months just browsing everything, trying to get examples, trying to play through games. And uh, at one point we said, okay, uh, let's try. And that, that was also very circumstantial because um, one of the courses that were running just missed out on um, a speaker. And they came to me like, Natalia, are you ready on Monday? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be um, obviously I was not prepared I, I didn't have a prototype mm -hmm. but I also gave a disclaimer to this group listen we are trying out a new method um, and th this can be largely improved but I need to see if it would work for you as an educational unit so the graphics were of course uh, ju just kind of uh, google maps download it and, and with pins Later, it became much more um, established and, and polished. But uh, at the beginning, you just have to see if it works and if you are able to follow uh, a structure that, that gives you some um, ways of explaining where things grew from. Uh, I, I think that is uh, a nice way to develop. Um, but the main point is to uh, be able to explain as well um, what happened in the design. And I think when I use these um, steps, that then it is uh, an easy way to put this together into a coherent briefing. So in a professional setting, um, would you, you... You must facilitate and participate in so many games, right? So... How do you recognize failure of design in professional war games and what what do you think you can learn from it? I think my least favorite example until this day is a game where we had a map and four players and four cities in the corners and we all had some resources, but we should um, coordinate where do we send, send what. And then they said they are going to only give us one minute per round. So the first minute we are looking at, okay, what do we do? So I say, listen, I sent medicine there, you did this. So it was a bit chaotic. We missed out on some things. But round two, I just said to everybody, food to the right, medicine to the left, and across you sent blankets or whatever. Okay. 
And uh, since then, we, we just repeated it every round. And uh, obviously, everybody was a winner. And then they calculated somehow that one person got more points than the other, whatever. And I was like, well, that's a result, yes. And um, in the debriefing, they told us that the problem is people don't communicate enough. And I was looking at them. No, no, it's not that we do not communicate. It's that you did um, limitations on communication. So mm -hmm. it cannot be your conclusion because you yeah. did it, not the game or the players. So I think this kind of failure to um, distinguish between things that are systematic and things that are actually being chosen um, would be... Uh, in professional games for me like unforgivable because people don't check um with reality and that is my second kind of example of things i really uh, dislike let's say it is easy to come up with something and propose that is the ultimate way to depict uh, a problem and once i was invited to uh, test this kind of um online digital solution that would be given to um, UN officers before they deploy. And the first part was already for me a bit question mark because they did not um, interview anybody in order to understand what this training should be about. They took it from literature. So scientists, as scientists, what does the military need? Mm, well, okay. Um, I, I guess we could try. Yeah, maybe they have a good guess. Um, but the outcome was ridiculous. Um, and then they told me also that they went actually to one of the countries and they made a recording of the sound so people think like they are there. And I'm like, none of it makes sense. <laughs> and then the method, and they called it a game. The method for making decisions was ABC, uh, multiple choice, Okay, uh, I, I guess, test. And uh, I look at them and I ask, how, how would I be learning from that? And they're like, if you are wrong, you come back and you can choose a different one. So you learn <laughs> what is right. <laughs> um, I was thinking like, hmm, I, I know how it ends because the people that have to do it will just do A, 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 yeah. write down the answer make a key, put it to their colleague, and that is the training. So what I didn't like about this setting is uh, nowhere in the process uh, did they consult the actual um, target audience. Mm -hmm. I do think in commercial settings it happens less because it is very quickly verified. Either people are interested or not, um, whereas professional and, and this kind of... <laughs> games that, that, that uh, go up uh, into structures, that they have very high potential to be wrong if they are never shown to the actual target audience. Uh, I don't know if that is also your experience, but what I've seen in commercial games is actually that's question number one. Who would be interested in this? Mm -hmm. I, you're out, you've outlined two distinct types of failure that I do see actually in commercial <laughs> <laughs> But I don't think failure is a little bit um, more pronounced when what you're failing to reach is an educational objective. I feel like then it's a little more egg on the face when you come out of this thing and people are like, you know, I didn't learn anything. Like that's yeah. pretty damning, right? Um, as far as I think that there's a lot of historical games, not not just specific war games, but maybe um, I, I don't want to get into the how broad or narrow given folks definition of war game is uh, here. But like, I, I do think that there's a sense sometimes if games are occasionally designed with an argument in mind. Um, but the thesis, sort of like in your first example, they're basically just trying to lecture the thesis instead of actually create a a model that enables play, where you can actually where they could learn something from the participants. That's not really there when it's like you have one minute to communicate, and then I'm going to tell you why that why your communication was poor, and then we're going to assign a winner out of the participants were all doing identical things like all the time it's like okay you could have just probably written an essay that 
made all of your same points without us spending any more time with it. If that's all you wanted to achieve and you didn't want to give any of the participants agency to mm-hmm. do anything or decide anything. Um, and then conversely, you give multiple choice. So again, the thing that, that these two failures have in common is a lack of agency in a weird way, because you should have more than a two thirds chance of failing at anything. You should failure should be an open buffet of failure, right? <laughs> Uh, lots of ways to fail um, is important. That's why I I don't solitaire play solitaire games as much as I play multiplayer games. But what I love about solitaire design is typically there's one way to win and like five or more ways to lose. Like that to me feels like the right ratio of failure. That that feels really good. And it's not as simple as just this. Oh, it's not A. It must be B that. Like it's not as simple as moving to the other multiple choice answer. It's about being able to take in, like assess what the pressing issues are, and then being able to pivot or change direction um, in a flash. And maybe you're not pivoting soon enough, or maybe too soon in some cases, but knowing when the when the um, elements of the game have changed in a dramatic, dynamic way, knowing how to move toward like your your objectives with a changing set of constraints, um, but yeah, I see I see those things in in commercial games still being kind of an issue. And granted, I do play a lot of things that are still in development, like a little early. Um, but when you have a game that's totally finished. And then you bought it from the store and you take it home and it literally has only one way to be played. Mm-hmm. It's successful. It doesn't feel, it's not like an invalid game, but it, it's nothing I would go back to. And I might not have even gotten that much out of it the first time I played it. It feels like a, a very limited experience and not, not, I think the type of thing that we engage with play from an educational standpoint, or even for a, a standpoint of fun, I, I want to know that even if I lose the same game over and over again to the same opponent, different opponents, sadly, no opponent in some cases, I am getting something out of the experience that's different every single time. But maybe that's a lot to ask. I don't know. <laughs> Well, educationally, I have to say that uh, I was pretty um, rebellious at the time because I already did experiments uh, that compared online and offline um, wargaming. And it was before COVID, right? So we we actually had the two options available and we had um, groups that would play it uh, online as a playthrough and then groups that we would do it as a facilitated exercise in the classroom and they actually like the online version less. And the main reason was that you do not get feedback on your moves. You don't know Mm. if it's a good or bad decision, right? You just click through. And as you say, come back. Okay, I choose something else. But why? Because the other one was not good. Not because I understand that this action in these circumstances does not bring benefit. So that was something that uh, I tried to uh, bring up. But then we come to the point of um, feedback, which I guess is also a very tricky and sensitive topic when you speak about designs. And they were just not listening, right? That They said, well, I'm a professor, so it, it must be right according to research. I was like, okay, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I do not see that. Okay, <laughs> we have to disagree on that. And uh, I also, just in the last two, three weeks, had uh, quite a lot of conversations about my prototype and the feedback was really good. And sometimes the feedback is, I don't understand this game and maybe half of it you should abandon. And it sounds terrible. So people look at you really like, can she handle it? And I said, "Uh, I, I have to say, when I look through the logic and the reasoning of it, I said, yes. You are right. This does not bring more. Just it's more diverse, but it is not a better game because of it. Yeah. So uh, I think it is very tricky to uh, be able to look at it, especially if the game is finished. So if you would have your design ready to to uh, pitch to publishers and somebody comes in with heavy feedback, like, do you still listen or do you just say, no, that's the game? Um, what happened with my game is actually it's split into three parts, which I didn't expect because in my view, it was already a small 
design, kind of mm-hmm. physically. But there were three separate um, things I wanted to put into it, um, which I think work better separate. So part of it is educational. And that part should not have randomness. Obviously, because you want to see precisely what I mentioned. Your decisions have consequences. Then we have a part which is a deck builder and a kind of um, building up defenses and uh, attacks and intelligence, um, uh, let's say mechanisms, uh, which is very good for a simulation of an incoming conflict, but has nothing to do with the educational part. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's the third part, which um, was the most uh, robust part with maps and cards and different things. But once you go into that level, potentially you do not follow the first educational goals. So the feedback was like, take out the third part. I'm interested in the second. And somebody else said, well, I'm only interested in the first one. <laughs> so I could be very defensive and say, no, it is a good design. Yeah. It's, it's just not for you. Or I could say, all right, if, if that is something that is right in front of me, why don't I split it into designs that cover different tor- target audiences? And that was also a designer's feedback. Yeah? So it was already kind of mm. in the uh, direction of uh, I can destroy this game. I was like, maybe we should. <laughs> maybe we should break it up. <laughs> uh, saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I, I'm kind of curious, like when you talk about the positive feedback you receive on on a design um, in any setting, do you, do you feel like most of the feedback is based on methodology in your experience? I do not feel like we have a... Um, a specific standard for it. Um, okay. So if I would be giving feedback, I am very cautious to like ask first, what, what kind of feedback are you interested in? Mm-hmm. Um, because people might be looking for different things. Um, if they are looking for overall, what do you think about it? Happy to share my thoughts. But if they are at the stage of, uh, we just need to fix the icons. Uh, there might be not the appetite to hear about um, how elegant uh, the drafting is. Yeah, so th- that is where I usually try to ask beforehand. Um, and I, I did have uh, good and bad feedback. I would say good feedback is productive. So it leaves you with thinking: Would that be a better version or or a change that I could uh, consider an improvement? Um, I think bad feedback is personal or not on the topic. So my nuclear uh, energy in uh, uprising would would be, (laughs) uh, well, maybe in some cases it it would matter, just not in my scenario, Uh, would be a kind of feedback uh, I should discard. I don't know why I carried around as as a kind of token of uh, (laughs) strange comment. Um, but I get the, it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of bizarre how how it stayed. Um, but there's also very um, constructive negative feedback. So someone yeah. might say, "I'm not interested in design because," and then you are listening. All right, yeah, yeah. There are ways to improve the rule book, the the map. Um, so the, the question is, and it's a very difficult question, when should we listen <laughs> to the comments? Yeah, and it, it, it probably depends a lot on the design intent, right? Like what um, what are you intending to do with the design? Sometimes the, what you're intending to do with the design, the point of friction with the player is that they don't feel that that's a point of emphasis for a given period of history or a conflict sometimes it's just that they don't like doing that thing you know i mean like you make a negotiation game they're like i don't like to negotiate and it's like why are we playing diplomacy like those are valid (laughs) it's like all valid feelings but it's a matter of like they're not um they're not essentially like either buying into the premise or they don't want to do the activity that's going to dominate the proceedings most of the time that they're interacting with the game or with their opponents. Um, I find that with the, with design, it's sometimes difficult to offer feedback to designers 
in part because I feel like my point of emphasis when I'm playing something isn't the thing that they're necessarily going to think is relevant to to players or maybe just relevant to their design intent. Um, for example, I don't know that a lot of designers think that much about how it, how their games make players feel, mm. which seems very broad and weird, but that is usually the first thing I'm thinking about. Cause if I want to create a situation where players um, are engaged, I always feel like it often comes from a place of tension. And I think that there's a thing, even your, so your example about this one minute to decide to communicate in this terrible type of like simulation, right? What it does have is tension, like early on, but the detention that that tension probably dissipates the fifth time you're doing the exact same thing. And you've kind of solved the quandary of like, how do we communicate in this limited time frame and, you know, that stuff. And to me, it's like the tension shouldn't dip that significantly over the course of a game. And sometimes it's hard to tell a designer what they mechanically should be doing <laughs> to satisfy some of your reservations with what they're modeling or what, what the design is supposed to be doing. Um, but it's, if you relate it as a feeling that you have, it's harder to refute it. I mean, it's like, I know you cooked me a meal, but I am still hungry. <laughs> <laughs> this was not enough food. It's hard to say you're a liar. You are in fact not hungry. <laughs> not a thing. Um, so, so that helps kind of bridge that gap. Um, and then they're not always um, going to feel as though. How do I explain it? I I tend to think that it's harder to be defensive about how somebody's feeling, and certainly that has to do with how we frame our feedback. Like if if I were to say your game was boring, like that's more of an attack. And even though it's based on a feeling, I don't think that's a constructive way of framing that feedback. But when you talk about things in terms of a lack of tension or a lack of agency, or um, that you were unclear on something that the designer thought was very clear in the model um you start touching on things that the designer can then reflect on like oh well how can i codify that better or how can i incorporate this into my design and then then you have the building blocks to kind of figure out how to communicate it but i imagine that the less structured your feedback collection is the more wild the feedback you're going to get <laughs> And I don't think a lot of wild feedback is super useful um, most of the time. It'll become like the nuclear energy observation, right? <laughs> I recently watched um, a presentation about pitching games. And the advice there was um, to look at expectations of uh, people that would be buying it and to describe the game based on that. And uh, as you said, there are groups or, or blogs that you can address. So one is people that like a certain mechanic. Mm -hmm. So if you say they are card-driven games, okay, they expect choices between playing game, playing the cards, withholding the cards, discarding the cards. This is, uh, let's say, our first subgroup. Number two is the topic. And then is it generally that it is deemed into a topic or do we mean more people that are interested to learn something about it, which would morph into the more educational? Because we would have a choice on our card. Is there a lot of text? Are there pictures? Um, are they chronologically ordered or are they just kind of pull whenever you want? Uh, and they also mentioned about describing the one-liners with, um, is it in first person or is it more the context that is dominant in the game? So if it is about me driving through Wild Wild West or is it about Wild Wild West shootings and bank robberies? <laughs> um, and they also, uh, I think, smartly said, what is the verb that would best describe the decisions? That's a great, that's a great observation. I was also thinking in my games, I would really struggle to put one verb, which would be very uh, good for people to set expectations on what they will be doing. 
Um, so we might speak about building, we might speak about fighting, we might speak about commanding, but you would finally know what is your role and, and your main uh, activity. So th there was a lot of um, good uh, advice in uh, having set out your game in a certain way that is uh, transparent to the players, not only to <laughs> kind of me. Mm -hmm. So if I look back at me writing the conspects for the games, they were not structured, as you say. They've been just wild of what do I think is the most important and then trying to describe it in a way that people understand. They were not looking from the perspective of the player, which I would say helps a lot with giving feedback on, you described that it will be this, so I expected that. Is, is that your goal? So as you said, mm. th there is this kind of discrepancy between what we might want to see and what we might want to choose. Um, I must confess, I love heavy Euro gates. So the more complexity, the, the happier I am. Uh, but I don't think it is like the dominant group <laughs> that, that would um, uh, be in the hobby. So uh, if somebody describes it as, as a heavy Euro game, it's like, oh, I need to see what I yes. do. Uh, whereas other people might be like, oh, heavy Euro games. No, thank you. But I love medium um, difficulty deck building. So if we are able to set the scene clear, I think it's easier to get also good feedback on how does it differ from the expected ideas about this type of games. Given your career in design experience and then your mention just now about like the what goes into pitching games <laughs> to commercial publishers in some cases, um, what kind of designs are you kind of looking toward designing like in, in kind of a commercial space? Is it something like heavy euros? Is it... I would love to. Um, so I must admit that uh, that is the part of being torn between three worlds because on one side I'm teaching, so I love to have games which I can use there, but they cannot be heavy euros. They, they must stop at a point where you are able to play them out in two hours with explanation and debriefing, mm -hmm. which I would say a one hour playthrough um, would be ideal. And um, as a scientist, I'm designing this kind of uh, technical games where we want to measure and we want to collect the data. Um, and I don't want to say they are boring, but they are very heavily geared towards, we want to see if this model is accurate. Yeah. Um, and the third part as well is I, I also design for commercial purposes. So if you would ask me, what do I look uh, towards there? I really would like a bigger design. Um, and the question is, can I kind of uh, suppress the other two instincts and focus only on uh, a bigger game that uh, I'm happy with? And bigger, I don't mean longer. Uh, I think two, three hours is a great um, timeline for uh, a good experience. But I am speaking about a big board and mm -hmm. many markers and player boards and resources, uh, which um, which just kind of makes me very happy. Yeah, I can tell you got a big smile on your face <laughs> just talking about the components <laughs> that would be eating up my entire dining room table, which is, by the way, when I buy games like that, I'm also like looking on with pride, like, look at how much of my table I can't see right now. <laughs> when a friend was telling me um, when he's looking at a game on North Africa front, mm -hmm. like in World War yeah. II, um, and he asks how long it is, he doesn't mean the length it would take to play it. <laughs> he wants to know how long the map is going to be. He wants to know how much table and plexi he's going to need. Yes, uh, we come to the point where we need multiple tables just to sustain uh, life versus playing. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for this discussion. Uh, this is fantastic. And um, in the future, I would love to, if I set up a panel amongst designers and things like that, if that's something you'd be willing to like, kind of uh, participate in, time depending, if we could accommodate <laughs> your time zone, I'd love to do that. That'd be great. I'm happy to join. And uh, I always say when I hear it, somebody read the book. I'm, I'm really <laughs> enthusiastic because 
Uh, I would say um, th this was, of course, the summary of the experience uh, of uh, wargaming with NATO and what I have uh, took out of there. But we are already a niche topic. And yeah. to uh, meet people that are equally interested in it, it is um, a, a fantastic evening for me. So thank you for the invitation. And uh, I usually also stay up late. So I'm happy to <laughs> communicate with you. Perfect. Well.